0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University.
1: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney, Sweeney, co-host of the podcast, and this week we wrap up our greatest hit summer series. And next week, Kristen and I will be back on the show with a new episode featuring Samford's new president, Dr. Beck Taylor. We hope you've been enjoying these past episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at dsweeney at sanford.edu or kpadea at sanford.edu. We want to wrap up this series with the inaugural podcast episode on the Beeson podcast. Our podcast began on October 25th, 2010, featuring a conversation with one of our founding dean's friends, Chuck Colson. Dr. Timothy George talks to Mr. Coulson on this episode about his incredible story of coming to Christ, how he started Prison Fellowship Ministry, and their work on the Manhattan Declaration. Chuck Coulson went to be with the Lord on April 21st of 2012, just shy of two years after this episode aired. Let's go back to the very beginning of the Beeson podcast and listen to Chuck Coulson's conversation with Timothy George.
0: It's a pleasure to welcome to the Beeson podcast today uh, one of my dear friends, Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was born in Boston, Massachusetts. He graduated from Brown University. He served his country in the United States Marines, later became special counsel to President Richard M. Nixon, was involved in the scandal of Watergate, spent time in prison. The Lord, in a marvelous way, transformed his life. And out of that has come a ministry that has touched uh, literally millions of people around the world. He is the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministries, a worldwide ministry for prisoners and their families that's chartered now in 120 countries around the world. Uh, Chuck, it's a delight to have you with us here on the Beeson Podcast.
2: Well, Timothy, uh, I am so grateful because you've been such a colleague and mentor to me. I love what you're doing at Beeson Divinity School, and I think it is a uh It's just a joy that you and I have this opportunity to work together.
0: Absolutely. Now, 1976 was called the Year of the Evangelical. And one of the reasons is that was the year your book, Born Again, became such a bestseller. Tell us just briefly how you came to Christ and why you wrote that book. Well,
2: I came to Christ uh, meeting with a friend whom I'd known for years, a a business associate. This was in the days, uh, beginning days, beginning dark days of Watergate. And I wasn't a uh, target of the investigation. I've been assured by the prosecutors. But I'd come out of the White House feeling a, a real sense of deadness, emptiness, and which I thought was just exhaustion from having been in such a high-pressure job, office next to the President of the United States for four years. and every crisis, I was in the middle of it. But it persisted for months. And then I visited with my Tom Phillips, who, who was the uh, chairman of the board of one of the largest corporations mm-hmm. in America, Raytheon Company, had been a client of mine before I went into the into the White House, and I was going back to once again be his client, walked in his office, and he was different. He seemed changed and relaxed, and I did, not the way I'd remembered him four years earlier. And I said, Tom, what's happened to you? You've changed. He said, yes, I've accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. Now, this is in the vast Unitarian wasteland of the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. I'd never heard anybody talk this way, and I changed the subject nervously, but something about it stuck with me, and... Four months later, as Watergate deepened, and I found myself drawn more and more into it, uh, I went to his house one evening, a uh, hot August night, and we sat on his porch, and I said, Tom, tell me what's happened to you. I want to know what this is. And he read me one chapter from C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, a book that probably is number one on my list of reading Mm. for anyone, Uh, because it really hit me, particularly the chapter he read, which was on pride. Pride is the one vice Mm. you see in everybody else, but never see in yourself. Mm. A proud man's always walking through life, looking down on other people and other things, never can see something above himself, immeasurably superior God. As Tom was reading this in a monotone, uh, I was feeling a surge of emotions, like a like a knife in the stomach, because it was uh, C.S. Lewis was writing about me, and I was deeply convicted. I wouldn't show it, because I was too proud and, and mm-hmm. too important in my big job as a lawyer and former politician. Uh, but when I got out to the automobile that night, leaving, him, he, he wanted to pray with me, and he did. He prayed, but I never prayed except in a church. I didn't know what he was doing. Got outside, and I was to drive the car away, and I got into the automobile, put the keys in the ignition, Looked around, wanted to go back and talk to him, but saw the lights going out in the house. Mm -hmm. And I tried to drive out of the driveway. I couldn't. I was driving, crying too hard. Uh, So I just drove to a little spot in the road and pulled over and stayed there maybe for an hour. I have no idea how long, crying out to God, saying, Mm -hmm. take me the way I am. I didn't know the words. I didn't know the hymns. I never heard what evangelical meant. Mm -hmm. I just knew I wanted Jesus Christ in my life. And I wanted God, I wanted God to save me, and he did that night. It was an extraordinary experience, because the next morning, tough marine captain, I never cried, White House tough guy, and mm. I, I, I cried like a baby. I woke up thinking I'd be embarrassed, and I wasn't. I felt free. Patty and I went off to a vacation on the main coast, and I uh, took that book, Mere Christianity, and went to a local bookstore and bought a Bible. I had no idea mm. how to read it. I started in the beginning. And I went through mere Christianity, underlining it with a lawyer's mind and a lawyer's pad, yellow pad, which said, there is a God, there isn't a God, Jesus Christ is God, he isn't God. Pros and cons. Mm -hmm. Got through it all and realized that it was overwhelming, it was true, and I knew it was true. And uh, I knew Christ had come into my life. So I've never been the same since. That was 37 years ago, I'll never be the same again. Uh, Life is so totally different today. I don't recognize the old Chuck Colson.
0: You know, the Bible says in Psalm 130, Out of the depths have I cried unto you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Yep. So it was in the depths of that experience that God rescued you, transformed you, yes, it was. and gave you a hope for the future. Now, yep. I talk about that in terms of your prison experience as right. well. well. The
2: interesting thing was, Timothy, when I cried out to God and he came into my life, I wasn't the target of the investigation. I subsequently became one. I subsequently was prosecuted. I subsequently pled guilty, and I went to prison. So people think that you have a conversion, and all of a sudden, your problems go away. That's really not true.
1: You got worse for you,
2: right at first. (laughs) But God stays with you through those things. Mm. And in prison, I realized that God had a bigger purpose for my life. I started out being very dejected in prison because I was an idealistic guy. I wanted to be, I, I wanted to go into politics and did and left behind a very, very successful law firm because I wanted to do something good for my country. I wanted to help other people. Mm-hmm. And in prison, the hardest thing, I wasn't worried about making a living. I knew I could do that when I got back out. In fact, I kept my law license in one state. I could practice law, I had clients waiting. But I was discouraged because I thought I'll never make a difference again. I'll never be able to do mm. idealistically anything that will affect the world. Little did I realize that the broken experience in prison God would use for bigger and more important things than I'd ever achieved on my own. Yeah, That's the paradox of the faith. And so out of that has come a ministry that has spread all around the world. And I, Amazing. I look back and I thank God for prison. I told that to Mike Wallace on 2020 a few years ago when he looked startled, I said, I thank God I went to prison. Look what he did. Look what God how I'd use that to change my life.
0: Indeed. Well, Prison Fellowship Ministry is uh, just uh, one of the great shining examples, I think, of what it means when Christians take their faith seriously. And from the very beginning of that ministry, uh, you've had a vision not only for ministry to prisoners and their families. That's the core of what Prison Fellowship is about. But also you've seen how the culture in which we live leads to the conditions in our prisons. And you've emphasized the importance of culture cultivating, developing a Christian worldview. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I went into the prisons because I felt a great burden for it. I still do. And and for the people who are forgotten and left out in society, we have got to be able to reach them with the church. So I'm passionate about that. But I realized as I started to go into the prisons, they were building them faster than I could get to them. Prison population went up. From the time I got out of prison, there were 239,000 people in prison. Today, there are 2.3 million. Mm. That's 30 years later. So um, I started to study all the causes of crime. I read all the sociologists of the 18th century and the 19th century, and the prevailing view at the time was a very uh, environmentally model, environmental model, where it was poverty and deprivation and living in slums. And I didn't believe that. It just it struck me wrong. And then I started studying the works of a couple of Jewish psychologists who said no. After 17-year longitudinal study, crime was caused by wrong moral choices and the, answer to crime was a conversion to a more responsible lifestyle. Then I read the works of Wilson and Ernstein at Harvard, who said that the uh, crime was caused by the lack of moral training during the morally formative years. And it struck me. Uh, I happened to have just read a book by Abraham Kuyper and been very impacted by his views on the sovereignty of God and mm-hmm. how Christians have to care about all of culture. Then it struck me that I can go into prisons the rest of my life and we're not going to solve this problem because... With the breakdown of the family and the moral decay in American society, we're going to be turning people out into prisons just as fast as we as, as fast as we can. These kids grow up with a, without a male role model; they mm-hmm. look for the male role model in the gang, and they end up in prison. So that's what got me thinking about biblical worldview. That's what got me thinking about Kuiper's great statement that there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, "Mine." And I began to think, well, I've I've got to start educating the church. And so the ministry took parallel courses, but very complementary, and very much related. We were dealing with the pastoral needs of the prisoners and trying to reform the criminal justice system and doing what a good prison ministry should do. But we were also speaking about the conditions that cause crime and how those could be alleviated or how those could be reversed in our culture. And the need for a great spiritual awakening uh, in America, which I felt deeply convicted about and continue to today.
0: Yeah. And that worldview ministry has become now Breakpoint, which is a radio ministry you have on 1,300 stations around the country, which is remarkable, a Christian voice that speaks into the culture, Christian truth, gospel truth in this world today. And I want to talk for a few minutes about another enterprise you and I have been involved in of late called the Manhattan Declaration. Uh, the Manhattan Declaration really began from our thinking together about what the Christian church should say on some of the pressing moral issues of the day in which we're living and how we can best make an impact for the gospel. Uh, and it's become a phenomenal thing. We have now over 456,000 Christians across America who've signed, and increasingly we're getting thousands of new signatories every single week. A document written by you, by Dr. Robert George, and myself. And the response has been so far exceeding anything we dreamed of. Uh, tell us uh, how uh, that a movement came about and how you think about where it's going. Well,
2: it was just about a year ago, uh, to me, a little over a year ago, that I began to be concerned that the church needs to speak to the culture, particularly to the great moral issues of the day, great moral issues. And I was reading history and I read the Barman Declaration in Germany in 1934, the Confessing Church, which opposed the Nazification of the church, and they said, We're going to stand apart. And we're, we're going to confess Christ in the face of this onslaught by the Nazis, and I thought that while the conditions here, of course, are nothing like that, uh, there still is a time in every society when you face have to face the threat to the gospel, and the threat to the critical issues that the gospel reflects in society. So I came to one of the meetings and, having had the great benefit of my relationship with you and your teaching and influence on me, I thought, "I'll ask Timothy. This is wonderful." I said. I'd just been reading about the Manhattan, about the Barman Declaration, wondering if it isn't a time for something like that. And you you looked at me with a smile, reached into your briefcase and pulled out 20 copies of the Barman Declaration and said you brought them to give to every member of the board, <coughs> which made me believe God was telling us to do something like that. Yeah. That led to discussions you and I had, Timothy, and prayers we had together and a realization that maybe we needed to be joined by one of the leading Catholic scholars in the world uh, the professor of jurisprudence at uh, at Princeton, Robbie George, and so the three of us got together, and I basically held the pens for you guys while you did the extraordinary task. Yeah. That 4,700 word document is the finest, uh, most well reasoned argument uh, for life, marriage and liberty. And when you look at the burning issues of the day, they all flow out of one of those.
0: I'm going to ask you to speak about those three issues. Those are the three major topics that are uh, considered in the Manhattan Declaration. Right. Now, one of the questions, one of the criticisms I've received, perhaps you too, is why do you just keep concentrating on those three issues? Why, why don't you care about the environment? Why don't you care about all the other issues? Well, we've just been talking about prison ministry. We know there are other issues other than these three. But I've referred to these three issues as threshold issues. We go through these issues into a wider array of concern. Uh, but if we can't agree on the sanctity of life and the dignity of marriage and religious freedom for all people, then we really have no common ground on which to address these other issues. Well, that's as precisely put as I could ever imagine it. That's exactly
2: right. They're foundational to everything else we believe. Everything we care about in human rights, everything we care about in care for the poor, everything we care about in uh, meeting the needs of marginalized people and people who are forgotten and people with physical disabilities and uh, how we handle end-of-life decisions, which is a big issue today, all flow out of our view of life. If life is nothing but a cosmic accident, then why would we care about human dignity? Uh, I've just been teaching ethics and it struck me all of our ethics flow out of one single truth, the radical truth which the Jews and Christians brought to the ancient culture and that was that man is created in the image of God and has an innate dignity. That was at a time in the Greco-Roman Empire when they had slaves and when the wise men ruled and everybody else were workers and can you imagine the scandal of these Jews mm. and Christians saying, no, man is creating the image of God. He has dignity. It it shocked and shook uh, Greece and Rome. The ancient world was shaken by this. This sure. was the greatest single contribution that Christianity has made to the welfare of human beings.
0: And you have this image of the early Christians going through the trash heaps of Rome, uh Collecting the babies that had been abandoned and adopting them and, and nurturing them. And the earliest document we have outside the New Testament, the Didache of the Twelve Apostles, says Christians are those who will not practice abortion and infanticide. So this is a part of the DNA of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it?
2: It's the very essence. It goes to the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Exactly right, which is why the life question is simply non-negotiable. It's simply too foundational to the whole nature of the gospel, that we are created in the image of the creator God. And I laugh at people who say, Why are you Christians all up in arms over abortion now? You have a love affair with the fetus. You've just gotten into this red hot social issue. I remind them that Bishop Athen- Athenagoras in the first century sent the first letter to Emperor Claudius of Brevious, Uh, objecting to the Roman practice of infanticide and abortion that was the first political letter the church ever wrote so we've been and we've been on that same position all the way through it's what led to our campaign to give rights to women that's what led to our campaign to abolish slavery every human rights campaign is rooted in that one central conviction so the paper, the Manhattan Declaration, is a call to conscience, as we call it, and a call to arms on the part of Christians to stand fast on the basic truths revealed in the creation account. Man made in the image of God. Man, therefore, has a free will. Therefore, he has liberty. And the second thing that happens after God makes man a woman is he joins them as one flesh. Yeah, right there in the first chapters of Genesis is the whole account and those issues are at the root of everything else we do.
0: There's a wonderful story about uh, that second uh, article of the Manhattan Declaration, which deals with the dignity of marriage. It happened in Santa Fe, New Mexico last January. There were two weddings, one in a Roman Catholic church, the other in a large evangelical church. They had separate weddings, but when the wedding ceremonies were completed, they came together, joined forces, and marched together into the center, the, the square of Santa Fe to celebrate the goodness of God in giving marriage as an institution and the goodness of family. Now, I think that's a wonderful example of what we want to do. We want to rebuild the marriage culture, and we want to call young people and everybody in our in our society today to understand the importance of marriage. This is not about gay bashing. It's not about being against any particular group of people. It is about lifting up the biblical and historic Christian understanding of what it means to live faithfully unto God in a marriage, one man and one woman joined together in a covenant relationship for life.
2: Exactly. And in the document that we have presented, that argument is made very, very compellingly. It expresses great sympathy to those who are morally disordered in any way, who may have attractions which are not natural. We feel sorry. We feel uh, we feel empathy with them and understanding with them. And we want to restore, help them be restored and welcome them in our ranks. And we blame ourselves with divorce much more for the cause of the breakdown of marriage uh, than the gay movement. So gay rights movement. So it's it's taking a very very even-handed and a very very sensitive approach to this difficult question. But it is standing fast. And as as you put it recently, this is the first time the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, bishops, archbishops, cardinals in the Vatican across America, are signing a document with eastern orthodox Mm. priests and bishops and with evangelical leaders across the board first time in actually the first time in history the three great confessions of the church have come together to speak to the most profound moral issues of the day, and to speak with one voice. It's extraordinary. It, it's, it is. It's God's doing. Yeah.
0: Now, the third issue we talk about is religious freedom, religious liberty, as you were just referring to that, grounded in the creation of God, but also in the example of Jesus Christ, and in the character of God Himself. Uh why is this such a pressing issue today? Why should Christians today in America uh in the year 2010 be concerned about religious freedom? I thought that issue was settled years and years ago.
2: <laughs> well, so did the founders and so did the early decisions of the Supreme Court. <clears throat> but there's been a profound cultural shift in America in the last uh, 50 to 60 years. The case law, largely because of the sexual revolution, it's kind of an interesting point. Uh, almost every one of the cases that has limited religious liberty has been over the right of choice uh, or the right to engage in sexual behavior in your own private way, in your own private relationships. Every one of those cases. But what those cases have done is to narrow, 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 gradually narrow the right religious liberty. So much so that Hillary Clinton in a speech at Georgetown University just a few months ago said we will steadfastly defend the right to worship took away the right to religious freedom a big difference Mm. you and i can worship quietly in our homes nobody's going to take away your right to worship you can do that in saudi arabia what you can't do is religious freedom which is the exercise of religious rights in which you put them into practice in the public square and this is being this and one sentence later secretary of state clinton said and we fully embrace the right of people to love in any way they want whomever they wish to love so what you're saying is that is becomes a transcendent natural liberty whereas the religious liberty is reduced to the right to worship Mm. this is dangerous and this is exactly what's happening on a broad front and so the defense of liberty religious liberty and Listen, I hope people, non-believers, if they're listening to this, or if those who are listening to this get a chance to talk to non-believers, please explain. We are not simply trying to pro- protect our own parochial rights. We are saying it is the right of every human being yes. to practice their faith and their freedom of conscience. I'll defend the right of a Muslim to do that. I'll defend the right of a Buddhist to do that just as much as I'll seek our Why? Because it's foundational. The nature of God and the nature of the human being. Wonderful.
0: Now, the Manhattan Declaration closes with what is perhaps its most controversial statement, certainly one that's been quoted most, where many people have said we call for civil disobedience. We really don't do that. Uh, we hope and we pray that in this country the rights that are enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution and in our laws will continue to be respected. But we do say that we will render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar's, but under no circumstances will we render to Caesar that which belongs to God. And we say that if necessary, we will be willing to go against unjust laws, just as Dr. Martin Luther King did in the civil rights period. Say a little bit about why we were led to that kind of uh, rather jarring conclusion for many people.
2: Well, there have been times, it uh, goes back to Augustine and Aquinas, who argued that an unjust law is no law at all, If you believe that the law of God is transcendent, if you believe that our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God or the city of God as opposed to the city of man, then, and the Bible's quite clear on this, then you cannot obey the law of man if it violates the law of God. Uh, And we may have to suffer for it because all through church history, martyrs have had to suffer for defending their religious freedom and liberty, defending not just theirs, but everybody else's. And so if you have a, an ultimate clash between an unjust law of the state, and that would be one that denied the ability to proclaim the gospel, then you have to defy it. And look mm. at the martyrs that have done so in this century. Look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Look at all of the uh, leaders of the church in Eastern Europe during the Communist oppression and, and in the Soviet Union itself. Look at those in China today who are disobeying by practicing their faith without registering with the state. This is something that Christians have got to get used to because we do live as sojourners and travelers through this world. We live to be good citizens, as Augustine said, because that's part of our duty out of our love of God, but at the same time, never Hmm. to render to Caesar what belongs to God.
0: We can't do that without violating our conscience, and God help us not to do that. Um, Chuck, you speak to young people all around the country, and indeed around the world, and uh, you think a lot about the future of the church. And I wonder, as you look into the future, are you filled with hope or despair? <laughs> Great question, Timothy. I'm always filled with hope because I know God is sovereign.
2: I also know that despair is a sin. If you succumb to that, uh, if you succumb to fear, fear is the absence of faith, it, except the fear of God, obviously. If you Come to despair. It's you're you're really denying the sovereignty of God. You're really saying I haven't got a chance. Well, no, you don't have a chance, but God does. So I look with great hope. I also uh, follow the the fashions and the trends in the church, and I guess it's going to happen with every generation. Everybody comes along and says, Ah, we've just discovered the element way to worship, and then you get a fad, like certain fads that have been recent, the emergent community and what have you. But that'll pass Mm. uh, because Mm. people are faced with the reality, which is indisputable, that we are contending for the faith entrusted to the saints once for all. And we are defending truths which don't change because truth can't change Mm. the truths revealed to us by God. And I think uh, when you see what's happening in America, we are dissipating we are just living off our inheritance our Christian inheritance and we are taken up with a materialistic culture but that's not true in China and that's not true in Mm -hmm. Africa that's not true around the world that's not true in South America so the church is always going to survive it is always going to thrive uh, under God's providence and sovereignty and so I'm just thrilled to be able to take my position in the battlefield wherever he has put me He's put me today, and you and I, and especially you and I working so closely together, in a place where we're seeing the Christian worldview, which has actually built the most humane civilization in human history, uh, being threatened daily. Mm. And so our job is to be winsome, loving defenders of the truth. And that's what we propose to do in the Colson Center. And you and I working together is one of my Mm. great joys in that, Timothy.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. We're almost out of time, but I I want to ask you to say a little bit more about the Colton Center, what it is, and how our listeners can be connected to it and involved with it.
2: I've been writing on biblical worldview issues since the mid-'80s. I wrote a book, Kingdoms in Conflict, which was full of a lot of uh, uh, worldview teaching. I went on to a book that was really, really concentrated on it, How Now Should We Live, in 1999. Uh, And then I started this breakpoint radio program I do every day which is on 1300 stations. I did that in 1992 to look at current events and and evaluate them in the light of what the Bible teaches us. Um, I also uh, have been involved in teaching young adults something in the Centurions program or adults of all uh, ages who come together once a year, a hundred of them, three residencies in Washington and of teaching online. But I feel in this season of my life that God has called me, uh, not as young as I was, and it's harder to travel and go through the prisons, but God's called me at this time to raise up a school of prophets as Samuel did late in his own life. Mm. And that is to have the Coulson Center, which will be a repository for all of my teaching, and will be a link-up for people with all... which which will enable them to reach all good resources. We want all of your stuff on there. The people that we know are good in the Christian world. We want it to be the go-to website where people can find resources on biblical worldview. My own library, which has been accumulating in my writings, uh, has now about 10,000 items on the Mm. website. It'll start including a lot of items of other people. We've invited everybody that we know and trust we believe to be orthodox, to be faithful believers, and to be concerned with a biblical worldview, to come and join us, make it a movement. We, we're really not looking for an organization. That's that's the beauty of the Manhattan Declaration. It isn't an organization. It's a movement. It's yes, people right. getting out and making a difference in their lives and joining together across the lines and not worrying about competing with each other. So the Colson Center will be the hub for that movement that movement and other movements that it spawns
0: And how can readers, or how can our listeners find out about the Colson Center?
2: colsoncenter.org, colsoncenter.org, and uh, they can get linked to it by breakpoint.org as well. Uh, They'll find links on there to Beeson, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're we're linking up with a lot of very like-minded groups, so come and make good use of it. I do a two-minute warning on there every, day, every week, which is a, on a new subject, and uh, I also do, of course, the daily breakpoints, which people can subscribe. Yeah.
0: I want to ask you to say something It's a little different kind of writing that you're doing now with your wonderful daughter Emily ah. about your unique and fantastic grandson Max. I think this book, it's, it's just going just coming out, is going to make a real impact in the Christian community. Tell us a little bit about that book and about Emily and Max. Well, two years ago,
2: my wife Patty suggested that it was time I wrote a book with Emily about Max, 19-year-old autistic son. Most people shudder when they hear that because autism has become epidemic. One out of 100 births now, males are autistic in some degree. Max is pretty severely autistic, and it was a tough deal for my daughter because her husband left after the child was born, which happens in about 50% of the cases. The guy can't just handle it. It's a real tough j- j- job raising a child. So she's been a single mom. She's been doing it. She's been growing in her faith with leaps and bounds. She's as mature and serious a Bible student as I know anywhere. Mm-hmm. Obviously, has drawn us extremely close together, uh, Emily and, and I. And so we've had fun. We we decided to sit down and write like other people of the publishers. And I said, my daughter wants to write on Max, and I want to write with her. They came, and they sort of had that look of, okay, this is Chuck Colson, celebrity. He's written a lot of books. He has a big audience. He's going to get his daughter in the act. Well, then we started both writing together, and they, about halfway through the process, they said, this shouldn't be a joint book. This should be a book by Emily. He, <laughs> you, you do the prologue and the epilogue, uh, uh, Chuck, and uh, because her writing is so different than mine, it's lively, It's mm. she's witty and funny, it's... So she's a gifted writer, and the book will be out this fall. We have we have a couple of expectations for this book. It, it's a story of overcoming as tough obstacles as life can throw at you, mm. but a faith that deepens in the process. And then the emergence of a 19-year-old lad with severe disabilities who has blessed and changed so many lives. It's a very personal story about Emily's in my relationship from the beginning, kind of a rocky start when she was a kid. I was responsible for that, and uh, then how we've we've grown together. But it's also a book that puts the life issue in focus, because what happens when you've got an autistic child? Do you give up? Do you uh, find ways to find out in utero if that person's going to have a genetic defect and eliminate Mm -hmm. them? Or do you let God give us people like Max, who turn out to be not a burden, but a huge blessing. So I hope it's a story that will give a lot of people encouragement, particularly those who have disabilities or people in their families with disabilities, those who have a tough time in life and are looking for hope. And It's from Zondervan, Zondervan, per- Zondervan. And yeah, what's the title of the book? Uh, Dancing with Max. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. and she, uh, you'll see, my daughter has such an engaging wit. Uh, the book is just fun reading. every we, We've been sending out readers' copies, and everybody comes back and says, I went to the next book. I just, I didn't want it to stop. The, the, the writing is such fun. She's a, she's a gifted communicator, uh, just like your family. You're, you've got so many gift, gifted communicators in your family, but she's really, really t- uh, talented. So I'm, I'm thrilled, and it's a great thing for her.
0: Well, I want you to tell a little bit about that. I've met Emily. She's a lovely young woman, and I hope to meet Max someday. You will. Uh, but t- tell us, just we've just got a second, but I, I just have to ask you to tell about his baptism because yes. that's one of the most moving stories I think I've ever heard you tell. I'm a member of a Southern Baptist church. I love it. It's a wonderful
2: church. Gospels preached. Uh, Max can't get into crowds, so but he wants to go to church with me always. And... 's been taking him to church he, he can't get into the crowds he can sit in the back or he can go in afterwards and arrange the chairs anyway he was there one Sunday when happy and Patty and I were worshiping and were, there was a baptism and he was sitting in the uh, in the entryway of the church where there was a television camera and he watched it and he turned to his mother he was 13 at the time he turned to his mother and he said, "I want to be baptized Grandpa can pap- baptize me in his pool." <laughs> So Emily told me afterwards, and of course we were really moved, uh, but I said I can't do that until he really knows what he's doing. Uh, I've got to be sure it's a sincere baptism. And I wasn't sure I should do it because I believe in clergy doing ordinations. That's not Baptist practice, but I still I still like to see it done that way and become a member of the church. So I solved that problem by getting my pastor to ord- ordain me for a day because <laughs> we, knew, we knew the pastor couldn't get in the pool with Max. Um, and then Emily's a great artist and she drew, she, the way she's been teaching Max is she draws pictures, so she drew a picture of Max and says Max loves Jesus and that another picture of Max and the baptismal and then what you do in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit drew it all out and said you can only do this and I, I questioned him, I said Max you can only do this if you love Jesus and want to give your life to him and he said yes, we went in the pool uh, it's an experience I will never forget in my life because I took him up to the end of the pool, shallow end, and I gave him the confessional name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I now baptize you, my brother, and he went down and came up with the biggest smile, and now every time he goes in that pool, he repeats it, including exactly the words I spoke before he gets in the pool, it just is always on his mind, and he's. He's led other autistic kids to be baptized. He's mm-hmm. led other autistic kids to Christ, which is the story we tell in the book. But that's – I have a lot of things on my ego wall at home, pictures with presidents and the pope and all the famous people and Billy Graham. The biggest picture is the picture of my baptizing uh, Grenson Max. Wonderful.
0: One Lord, one faith, yeah, one, baptism. one baptism. I'm glad Max Amen. is a part of that. Amen. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministries of Breakpoint and the Colson Center for Worldview, uh, and also one of the drafters of the Manhattan Declaration. Thank you, Chuck, for this wonderful conversation. It's a blessing to be with you always,
2: Timothy. Thank you.